Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited to talk to you, Allison, about you. <laughs> this is the Meet Allison episode, and I have so many questions and so much I want to learn. So I hope you're ready to dish it all up. No pun intended. <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be, Andrea. Well, then let's go. So we mentioned it in the intro, but let's talk about this a little bit. Tell me where you live. I live in a town that is just outside of Florence in Italy. The town's called Ponte Sieve and it's about 20 minutes on the train from Florence. It's a medium-sized town um, and I can see the the Florentine hills from my kitchen window. Um, We've been here in this house for about nine months. Been in Italy for about a year and a half. Um, both me and my partner are English, but we're, um, we've transferred our life over to Italy. The pictures you post online are ridiculous. <laughs> it's a beautiful I... part of the world. <laughs> yes, you can rub it in all you want. It's beautiful. I look forward to coming out and seeing you sometime. So you you mentioned your family just a little bit. So tell me just a little bit about your family. Uh, So my husband's name is Rob and um, we've been together about 10 years. He's just as much on the kind of health food journey that I'm on. And we have a son called Gabriel who's six years old, who's just, um, he's half homeschooled and goes to a school here two days a week. And they're my two kind of recipe testers, sous chefs, and general eaters of everything that I create here. Oh, hard job. Well, they're <laughs> taking one for the team, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that that's a good job to have. It's also a good thing to have a family that supports what you're doing and doesn't just say you and where's it's absolutely a game changer you know I've spoken to lots of people who don't have that who actually have to kind of fight or get ridiculed or criticized for the way that they want to eat and to have something that's completely the other end of the scale where as I'm being encouraged and there's so much enthusiasm and I'm being supported and helped all every step of the way it absolutely transforms the way that my life is my health is the whole family is you know the way that we live it's it's a wonder an absolute wonder to have that support and I, I'm grateful for it every day now I'm guessing we'll talk more about how long you've been eating this way but if you started your little guy off eating this way he doesn't know any different but how about your husband was this did you have to ease him into it or was he as gung-ho as you no, no. He Before I met him, he was um, experimenting more than me r- around food, really. He'd, um, for health reasons, he'd done water fasting and he was experimenting with different ways of eating. Mm-hmm. And so when we came together, 
um, it was really a case of my creativity and my enthusiasm in the kitchen just bringing to life what he was eating because he'd eat very, very simply because he doesn't have a kind of a, a penchant for being in the kitchen. Right. Um, but he was literally just as enthusiastic, if not more, than me before we met. So there was no need for me to have to convert him or... or persuade him it was more a case of me creating stuff and and his life turned his food life turned from black and white to color really I think I love that I'll be looking for his book coming soon (laughs) (laughs) all right from from black and white to color my life with the the queen of the ancestral kitchen (laughs) (laughs) I apologize if you can hear my dogs in the background barking outside all right so you said you and Rob are English, living in Italy, so I'm guessing you lived in England before. And why did you move? What brought you to Italy? Yeah, good question. Um, really, passion, my desire, my inability to feel comfortable living in England. Really? We originally moved here in um, 2009. I'd been through a very bad time health-wise and in in the depths of that I just said to myself I know what I need to do is move to Italy that's what I want why am I not doing it it's because I was terrified and as I gradually got better I moved out here in 2009 and Rob who was then just my boyfriend followed me and we had a period of about five years here when I then got pregnant with Gabriel I was really adamant about a natural birth and my investigations of how it worked here made it very, very difficult. So we actually went back to England to have Gabriel naturally and that happened wonderfully. And I tried to stay in England. I knew, I thought, well, this is the best thing for my son. You know, this is where we're from. It's our culture. It's easier kind of bureaucratically and financially to be in England. But Mm -hmm. I just... I was wilting like a flower and I tried so hard and I just got ill and you know our bodies know more than than our minds do and my body was saying to me you need to go back there and so with Brexit kind of on the horizon at that point we knew we had to be quite quick and so we took a massive leap and it was a huge development process for me because it meant leaving behind a lot of things that were very secure and stepping into the unknown again and bringing my son back here. Um, but yeah, it was it's really passion and that I feel more at home in this country than I do because the sun and the colours and the light and the food and the culture and the people, I feel more at home here and I feel like this is my soul's home and unless I'm here, something just doesn't work inside me. Wow. That's... So you're a poet. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. That actually, I, I have another question for you, and you kind of alluded to it. So I, I want to jump ahead to this question a little bit and ask you, do you feel, it sounds like you do, but do you feel as though where you're living is, do you feel like just your geographic location is affecting how you're eating. Mm. Your, you know, is it 
um, maybe helping your choices or hindering choices at times, depending on where you live? Is it easier or harder to eat a certain way? Are you more inspired or less inspired to eat a certain way? Making the connections to find food that we're happy to eat is harder here or has been harder here because of the language barrier. I am not a linguist at all um, and I struggle with languages but I'm determined and so you know going and talking to a farmer in England there's no problem I do it automatically we both speak English but right. speaking to a farmer here is more difficult. In addition, there's not the internet network here as strongly as there is in England, so you can't necessarily search for things online mm. and find them. It's all a matter of who you know. So actually finding food has been a little bit harder. Um, but the f type of food available is um, more conducive for eating the way that I want to. We've been able to find more producers here who are enthusiastic and passionate about what they do there's a stronger artisanal culture of for example smoking and curing creating foods using hands in a slow way that's kind of been lost more in England it is there and there's a revival of it but it's more still in the fabric of society here and the the sun here means that there's more produce that's you know more variety of produce whereas in England the produce doesn't just doesn't taste the same you know the the peppers don't taste the same the greens don't taste the same it's one of the things that surprised me about living here to start with was that there's an incredible um, home garden culture so everyone has their own garden like an allotment out the back of their house where they grow all sorts of vegetables all year round. And there's almost, whenever there's a spare piece of land going, you'll find that someone's growing kale on it or Brussels sprouts or cabbages, you know, underneath kind of bridges or by rivers. Every piece of land is, is taken over and people grow stuff on it. And there is that culture in England, but it doesn't seem as central to people it doesn't seem as much in their bones as it is here and that enthuses me to carry on my journey but also gives me more choice of what's available so yeah that's kind of a long answer but it it has affected how we eat and I prefer being here because I'm more enthused and more passionate about what's around me that's amazing I didn't realize the extent to which everybody out there was growing the little gardens and yeah. that would be some just an interesting culture to just dive into and, and understand why that is and and, mm. and why it's different I mean it's there's areas around the United States where you'll find that but it's not necessarily everywhere so that's mm. really interesting my my concern or my my wonderment is whether that culture will die when this generation of nonas and nonos die because it's generally the grandparents who look after that piece of land and you know there are supermarkets here there are people who are working both partners who go and shop yeah. at the supermarket and so mm -hmm. I wonder as time goes on and that generation passes whether this new generation when they become grandparents will continue that tradition or whether it will start to fade and I, obviously I don't know the answer to that. 
That will be interesting to see. I, you're connecting to all the other questions that I have, and I, I'm just staring at my list. I don't even know where to go next, but <laughs> I'll just go down the list then because I have so many things to ask you. So um, let's jump back in time a minute. Mm-hmm. I want to ask if you grew up eating this way, if this is fairly normal for you, and if not, what was provoking your change? What what influenced your thought process and brought you to this point? Mm, okay. So there's a simple answer to the first part of the question, which is no, I didn't <laughs> grow up eating like this. I grew up in um, kind of what you would call a, a, a standard American diet, you know, the kind of term sad diet, uh-huh. um, household. Sad. <laughs> and it wasn't, really through the desire to necessarily eat that way but my parents were very normal in their way of eating in quotes so they shopped at supermarkets they do still shop at supermarkets my mum had a set number of meals in her repertoire um, and she cooked them and we ate them it it was very much kind of normal and it wasn't bad it was just ill-informed so for example she she cooks with vegetable oil and and then reuses that vegetable oil again and again and again. There's supermarket meat. There's not care about where the produce has come from particularly. And then there was another side to it, which was food was used very much as a treat. So I grew up kind of holding things like sweets and ice cream and chocolate out as something that were a tempting thing for me and which we ate on um, special occasions and very very often and I feel like yeah what changed um it's a really good question (laughs) I well what happened was because of because of the way that I was eating I ended up being overweight and I got to the age of 20 and I was 20 stone which was which is 280 pounds and I'd lived my entire adolescence overweight I was the fat girl and I didn't know why it was happening I didn't know any other way of being it's just it was my life and it it didn't happen to my sister so it's not as if the way that my parents ate was something that was automatically going to produce that but it that's the way it showed itself in my body And I, at 20, I kind of looked ahead to my life and I wanted to have fun. I I wanted to enjoy my 20s. I remember being sad that my friends were enjoying themselves and, and, and I had this inability to dress nicely, inability to kind of move myself, inability to be attractive to men and inability to feel like, I was who I was inside when I looked in the mirror. And so I decided that that something had to change. And I remember the the moment very clearly. It was Boxing Day and my parents had some chocolate raisins, chocolate covered raisins. And I said no. And I never said no to anything. You know, I ate chocolates and sweets and crisps and everything that was bad for me. But I 
I got the courage in me to say no. And then really from there, over about a year and a half, I lost half my body weight. Wow. And looking back, if I did it again, I wouldn't do it in the way I did it because it was the 80s and um, I did it by cutting fat out of my diet, which I think has left me with some lasting problems. But I lost half my body weight. And really that was the beginning of my journey to take me from this kind of standard American diet to the way I am now. And the first thing that granted me was an absolutely solid belief that if I wanted to do something, I could do it. Because really, you know, I'd been fat all my life and it was a mountainous thing that that I was looking at and I didn't go and ask anyone else for help. I just did it. And that has granted me always uh, a knowledge that I have the power in me to change my situation. And from there on, I went through various explorations of types of eating. Um, To begin with, it was very low fat, but then that kind of developed. I ate vegetarian for a while. I ate vegan for a while. I ate raw vegan for a while. For, For two years, actually, I ate raw vegan. And it was... It was meeting my partner, really, that shifted me to the next level because I was stuck in this kind of mainstream world where there were only certain kind of books in my kind of vision. There were only certain researchers in my vision. My partner came from a very different background um, where he'd already been on a massive health journey himself and he was exposed to people who were talking about water fasting and different ways of eating and his parents had a different view on life and so when I met him it was like there was this door in front of me that I'd had closed and I'd only been looking in this room and opening that door meeting him was opening that door and suddenly there was all this information and knowledge available to me and I was so ready to take the next steps to kind of learn more and to develop and so really then together we journeyed to bring us to where we are now He is, um, one of his strongest values is integrity and authenticity. And that was something that my life had been lacking as a child. I'd pushed down the things that I'd loved in order to be normal and successful, in order to do well at school, in order to get a good job, which, you know, I I had. Um, But I pushed down all the things that I loved and I was passionate about, thinking that they were frivolous. And he started to allow me to let go of that and allow those things to to come back into my life and that included this kind of curiosity and love of baking and cooking and and making recipes up and from that we both researched together and I would make things in the kitchen and we'd learn something else and we'd try something else out with our health we water fasted together as I said we ate raw vegan and then I, we, we swapped from raw vegan back into eating meat and animal produce, which was a difficult transition at the time because of a health issue that I didn't have a menstrual cycle and I wanted to have a child. We wanted to have a child. Um, and at each step along the way there, both of us dove into research and tried things out and experimented. And then it, it's kind of like a snowball getting more and more snow rolling down a hill you know with that support and with that 
um, curiosity and with that desire for truth and integrity as a couple and as a family we've just kind of rolled down a hill picking up more and more and more information and more knowledge and more experiments and more creations and somehow that has brought us to this place where we are now where we're eating um, in a completely different way to how I was as a child and I'm involved in food in a very different way to how my family was and, and how they are and it's wonderful I, I I love this it's it's brought so much else to me other than kind of health and um, curiosity it's brought so much to my spiritual development to who I am to how I express myself in the world it's brought me so much joy and um, that's a wonderful thing I love it <laughs> that's absolutely an incredible story and I felt like you you refer to it as a journey and, and it really felt like that I know we we were chatting on Instagram about reading Narnia to our kids and that's what I feel like you, you know you opened the wardrobe door you went in and you saw this other world and there's um, people who don't believe you and don't want to hear about it but you truly found something magical and the fact that the two of you are expanding each other and just that feels like the ultimate partnership right there yeah it's a it's a joy to have a partnership like this but also I I always have to remember that you know I chose this partnership and at the beginning we had we had a lot of arguments and we had a, a lot of friction and we had a lot of things to work through and instead of turning away from those problems and, and ending a relationship we both addressed them because we wanted to stay together and worked through them you know and I feel like right. partnerships are a, um, a matter of kind of processing and learning and developing together and not turning away from pain and problems and so I have this relationship which I, I'm so grateful for but it's something that that really both of us have worked on and still have to work on all the time and and through working on it it becomes the support that that it is for me and him well absolutely and just as we were chatting about a couple minutes ago before we hit record people sometimes look at you and say oh you're so lucky that your body is you know healthy like that or whatever but your what you just said about your relationship with your partner would apply to the story you just told me about your relationship with your body that you were fighting with your body and there's either there's one way to detach from your body <laughs> you didn't do that and you decided to work it out and I think that's just amazing and wonderful yeah thank you thank you it it's my path and um I feel like it's it's brought me so much and it's also shown me the hardest things that I've had to do in my life as well those, those two things come together I don't think you have um, a deep relationship and integrity with yourself unless you face hard things and the hard things are what, what make us and I I agree with what you said is often you know people you can look at someone and think oh well they're thin and beautiful and they've always been like that or they've got good skin and and I had terrible skin and I spent my entire adolescence overweight and being bullied because I was overweight and it's through going into that and addressing the problems that I had and facing them 
that I've managed to move to to where I am and there's still much more work to do much more work to do um, but that's something that I that I know I can do and I know that I'll learn much as I carry on with my journey I love it that's absolutely just <laughs> couldn't have asked for more from that question <laughs> thank you so you 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 answered the question that I was going to ask which is why do you eat in this way but I actually want to drive into this question a little bit more the name of your Instagram is ancestral kitchen you mentioned that you've tried everything from water <laughs> to raw vegan to vegan to vegetarian to low fat no fat to what are you doing now and what landed you here hmm. okay so good luck with that <laughs> yeah I, I have to remember what's what's kind of normal in quotes so I can describe the way we eat <laughs> so what normal? are we eating now so we eat um we're omnivores so we eat meat and fish and eggs and we try as much as possible to source those from some someone we know so we know the animals have been raised in as humane way as possible with respect for them the environment and everything around them and that those animals have been fed in a way that is a diet that is traditional and natural for them not been fed for example <clears throat> with soy or corn or grains really so we look for pastured meat as much as possible we eat grains but we process those and by processing I mean we soak them and generally we ferment them as well so we we eat grains in bread in porridges and those are all processed we eat some beans which are processed but but not so many and then we eat vegetables which we are trying to to source locally and we along with those staples we eat a lot of fat and that fat is usually olive oil from here or lard and tallow which we render ourselves from the fat that we get from our local farmer and some coconut oil only a little bit though because I would prefer to use the fats that are around me rather than import something from somewhere else I personally don't eat much fruit at all. Um, I have a really strong reaction to sugar, which stems from my childhood, I think, where I just ate sugar, basically. Even when I lost weight, I cut fat out of my diet, but I continue to eat tons of sugar. And my gut biome has been moulded by that earlier part of my life. So I eat hardly any fruit and I don't eat sugar at all. The only sugar we use in the house really is for water kefir. And that brings me to the next thing that we eat, which is a lot of ferments. I'd almost forgotten that. <laughs> so we, we have um, ferments with basically every meal. Um, we're making sauerkraut. We're making water kefir. We're making sometimes bread crevasse. We're making um, fermented garlic. I've got some fermented Jerusalem artichokes um, that have just been ready we're eating a lot of fermented food and all our grains fermented. Um, we, within that, you would say loosely that's kind of Western Price tradition, uh, the Western Price Foundation. But we've kind of taken it a bit further in that we're 
fermenting a lot more of the grains I think and making ancestral dishes from other parts of of the world like for instance I make a, a fermented millet drink called boza which is originally from Turkey um, but also we brought more wisdom into that recently in that um, for example we're experimenting with eating lectin light or lectin free and seeing how that affects our particular health makeup um, I can't remember if there was another part of your question I think I've answered the first part I think you did and I actually want to just jump on right here and say you're eating lectin free in Italy tell us about mm. that <laughs> yeah so we haven't had a summer yet where we're eating lectin free but um yeah so a lot of the famous Italian vegetables like aubergines and tomatoes and peppers are full of lectins and we've literally cut those out um, since we've been experimenting with lectin free but I don't think it's necessarily something that we have to do all the time going forward. For example, with tomatoes, most of the lectins are found in the seeds and the skin. And if you look at the way that traditional passata, tomato sauce, is made in Italy, it's made by skinning or putting the tomatoes through a, a machine that manually takes out the skin and the seeds are removed before they're cooked. So... To have a traditional Italian passata, tomato sauce, you wouldn't have the seeds and you wouldn't have the skin in it anyway. And that's where 90% of the lectins are, I believe, in tomatoes. So it's really interesting for me to, to just be playing with this on top of you know, what we're doing as our kind of base recently and to understand that these kind of ancestral traditions that I've been learning about separately actually have scientific links to new research that's being done now um, and I think that really there are ways in the kitchen that you can process things to enable you to eat in a way that is as toxin light as possible that the mainstream and the food that's on the shelves in the mainstream doesn't take um, it doesn't have in its in its knowledge you know there's ways that I can process bread for example to lighten the lectin load there's ways that I can process those tomatoes and as everything it's a working process for us and we experiment and try and and we'll we'll see what what works for us as we move forward that's just amazing I think you had posted on your Instagram one time that uh, I'm trying to remember what it was a picture of and you said this is processed food <laughs> and you said processed in terms of and then you kind of broke down what you had done to prepare it mm. so yeah, and it, uh, I think we've got the wrong wrong meaning for the word processed I mean we think of processed yeah. food as things in tins but actually right. in less than you know 100 or so years ago processes were done with hands in the kitchen mm -hmm. from the garden to the kitchen and processing was a way of making food more acceptable for the body to get the most out of it as possible. And so I say yay to processed food because we should all be processing our food in a way that, that makes it more acceptable and, and helps our bodies thrive. But instead we have industrial processing of food and I'd like to kind of turn that word upside down and bring the processing back into the home and back into the kitchen. Right. You know, there is a farmer that I learned just so much from and he used to say how come 
we have to label our vegetables organic and the manufacturers that are growing with pesticides and herbicides can call their food conventional he said our food is conventional yeah this is the way food has been grown for thousands of years your food is classified as chemical produce and so Mm. i've used that distinction ever since if it's grown without the aid of synthetics then i call it conventional and if it's Mm. grown with synthetics then i call it chemical produce and when you Mm. call it for what it is it's kind of ghastly Yeah, I mean, if that was on the the packets of things that right. people bought, it's like, you know, the the rules that changed around smoking to have more warnings on packets. Yes. <laughs> then it, it, the, the industrial processing um, conglomerates have used whatever language they can in their marketing to make things sound natural. But if we actually knew what was involved in the stuff that we buy, then it would be we'd have to confront it you know we'd have to see it we'd have to kind of take a breath and realize Mm -hmm. what we're doing to ourselves right it's so much easier to ignore it when there's a cute picture of a farm on the front yeah and 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 sorry can I (laughs) (laughs) you've got me you got me excited and it's not just you know we're not just destroying our own health we're destroying the health of the world as well and the environment at the same time so it's I agree it's tragic I I just keep glancing at our time and I think, boy, I have a lot oh, of questions sorry. I want to ask her. Okay. <laughs> but everything you're saying is so good and so solid gold. So you're telling us about the way you eat. I know that Rob runs up the hill for milk and comes down with butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So knowing this, you, you've done the work. You're You're talking about having to find farms only by word of mouth but a word that you don't understand and you've surmounted these challenges you're finding this food tell me about your kitchen setup what does it look like when you walk in there to make some food is something happening in your kitchen at all times what's going on how big is it I need to know Okay, it's tiny, absolutely tiny. <laughs> yes, both I of, love that. Both, <laughs> both Rob and I are, you know, passionate about what what we want to bring into the world, and we prioritise our creative expression over um, bringing money in, or we have done. And so we really want we don't want to take up more space than we need to in the in the world, and we don't want to clean a great big house. So we've got a tiny house, we've got a tiny kitchen. <laughs> Uh, the first thing you'd probably notice when you walk in is the table, which is a beautiful chestnut wood table, which we bought from a, an old lady um, who lived close by when we moved. And the table is the centre of the house, which is my intention, and it's beautiful. We really don't have much space. We have a single sink, we have um, our cooker, and we have a little bit of workspace. And because of that, it has to be as organized as possible we've got things hanging I like to have things ready to to get to I don't want to touch things twice I don't want to have to lift lift seven bowls out to get one bowl so we've got sieves and as much kind of saucepans and things hanging up where we can um Italian kitchens have a drying rack for crockery above the sink which I love so we when we wash up we just put the dishes above the sink and they drip dry and then they're there um, we've got a beautiful chopping board and most of the work happens there. 
there's there's always something on the go, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think what's on the go at the moment. So our, our oven is an oven, but it also doubles as a proofing box. Rob made me a temperature-controlled little apparatus that I put in the oven when I'm not using it, and it maintains the temperature of whatever I want ready for kind of proofing and creating fermented goods. So in there at the moment is some soons, which is a Scottish fermented drink made from cracked porridge oats, cracked oats. That's in there at the moment. Very often the boza, the millet drink that I talked about from Turkey, is in there. Often our bread's proofing in there, or I've got ground um, grains. I often make a millet and sorghum porridge, which is lectin-free. I put a bit of starter in it, and that's often in there fermenting. That's where I keep kind of grain products. And obviously I have to take everything out to do the cooking and then put it all back in <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> um, we've usually got... Um, We've got another shelf on the other side of the space because it's a kitchen, but it's also a living space. We have one room upstairs, one room downstairs. So the other side of the living space is a shelf where we've got sauerkraut and garlic fermenting and Jerusalem artichokes at the moment. And then we keep our kefir over there. I always have two jars of kefir on the go at any one time. So that's always over there. You'll often find me in the morning or in the evening redoing the kefir, moving it to a second ferment or checking my sauerkraut, or checking the boza or the or the suans, getting bread ready. So there's there's always a kind of a flow, but it's it's of little things, you know. It's it took me maybe I don't know ten minutes this morning to get the suans out of the proofing box, stir it around, put it back in, get the kefir off the shelf, the water kefir put it through a sieve into a second ferment chop up some apple and garlic and put it in and then that's all back on the shelf everything's away and I'll I'll look at something else later on so it's 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 a flow and I manage it because Rob helps and because Gabriel helps a little bit as well now which is lovely um, but it's it's always around me and it's very organized and there's always something bubbling and it, it's something that I just give attention and care to for small amounts of time during the day to maintain that kind of level of everything that's happening in there. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. It's ridiculous. It's such a <laughs> such a peaceful, blissful, actually, description of the incredible value that can come out of these little processes that I feel are just um, stolen from us in so many ways when we've when we're we're not granted that gift of seeing our elders doing these steps it's foreign to us we have to read about it in books and online and recreate old ways for ourselves based on you know the notes that people have left behind for us because we mm. haven't seen it done but so empowering, you know, to flip a jar over or to stir or to strain some grains out or something like that and just feel that magical processing that you're doing in your own kitchen and, and turning the simplest of foods into such high value foods. Yeah, yeah. That's, and it, 
it's just a, a little bit of attention, then somehow through all of these things, we get food three meals a day that is has been processed in a way that makes it better for us and is respecting everything around us and mm-hmm. and gives us beautiful, tasty food too. You know, it's a, it's a joyous thing. What is driving you to share this with everybody online and on a podcast and on your blog? Yeah, that... I had to get clear on that because I only started sharing it earlier this year and I'd had a three-year, almost a three-year break from social media completely. And I was very, not cautious, but I wanted to be very conscious about going back online. And it's very clear to me that the reason that I want to share what I do is the joy that it gives me. I, I literally, I love what I do. I love the... Um, the way it makes me feel, the way that the choices that I make when I buy the food, the things that I do in the kitchen, the way I share it with my family, the way my son's involved, the way I'm researching, my curiosity, I absolutely love it. And I feel such joy around it. And joy is contagious, you know, and joy is a wonderful emotion. And and I wish that, I wish everyone feel the joy that I feel around it. And so it's, it's literally that joy that pushed me. I remember Rob saying to me a, a couple of years ago when we were still in England, we lived in Cornwall in Penzance. You know, what you do here is in the kitchen is amazing, Alison. You know, you, you, you've got to share it in some way. And, and I, for ages, I thought that kind of cooking wasn't creativity, that creativity was art or creativity was music, that kind of thing. And it took much kind of gentle soft words from him and experimenting and and changing for me to realize that what I was doing in the kitchen was just as creative as writing music and that it wasn't normal that that other people didn't eat like this that it was something amazing that needed to be beyond the four walls we lived in and so Rob kind of nudged me and then once we got the move done once we got the moving countries over and done with just the joy of of doing what I'm doing on a daily basis and the desire to communicate with people about it you know the fact that I've met you during this process and I can talk to you and share this wonderful thing and we can learn from each other and share with each other that brings me a lot of joy and so the ability to communicate with other people and see what they're up to and learn from them and share what I'm doing beauty is a massive Um, motivator for me and so you know when I take pictures and share them on Instagram I'm doing it because I think it's beautiful and I'll try to capture the light if it's there and I'll try to capture the color as well and so sharing that beauty communicating that beauty and talking to other people and seeing what beauty and what joy they're creating in their kitchen and then maybe hopefully transmitting a tiny bit of my joy and letting that infect someone else that's why that's why I do it because it's just it's just wonderful your Instagram is so beautiful and just so real this is what's happening right now this is the food that's happening when I read your Instagram I'm just stunned at the the depths you will go to learn about what it is you are 
eating or preparing what is pushing that just I mean this is above and beyond where the average cook even the Weston A price cook who is you know different than you know the way most of us grew up what is driving you to just dig so deeply into every aspect from the culture history the the biology of what you're eating what what's pushing that what's driving that it's hmm. an interesting question and perhaps something I don't 100% understand in myself but I think I want to be as authentic as possible and through choosing to be authentic I want to to understand what wisdom is what truth is where there's truth and I believe that collectively as a community and ancestrally we have an awful lot of truth and an awful lot of um, wisdom to impart and I am by nature extremely curious I'm ridiculously curious and so if there's a truth out there if there's knowledge out there that I can bring to life kind of read take into my body learn process create and share then I want to know about it because I believe that as a as a species as a community we have the ability to thrive and heal and create a world where people aren't being damaged the planet isn't being damaged the environment isn't being damaged and we've lost that connection that truth and so by researching at the level I am I'm desirous to to kind of pick out to find the wisdom to find the tradition to find the truth in things and bring it to life because to lose something like that is a, a tragedy you know to lose the knowledge that for example in the book that in Italian that I'm trying to read at the moment <laughs> it's knowledge that potentially could be could be lost forever and that is a great loss to humanity and so if I can just do a little bit to try to understand it and then pass on the joy that I feel of finding that information and, and why I believe it's truthful and has wisdom, then that's a, a rabbit hole I'm going to go down. All of that comes through so well in your, um, your both your blog posts and your Instagram. You never sound pretentious you never feel pretentious or braggy at all you just sound effortless and you're just sharing and you're you sound so passionate and I know you are because of the personal conversations we've had you just you 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 truly love what you're learning and I just I'm so grateful that you're sharing it because that's how I found you was your Instagram I think right about mm. when you kind of open it back up in 2020 and I came across it and just was smitten. <laughs> Thank you. It's in, It's been very important to me to maintain a kind of an authenticity around my Instagram. So, for example, I, for technological reasons, but also because of that authenticity, I, I decided that I wasn't going to 
um, use any filters on my pictures because uh-huh. I don't want to spend more time on a on a computer than than necessary really because I don't think it's right. a good thing in our lives but also I want just to show my kitchen and so if I can move a plate into the sun or out of the sun or into on top of a piece of wood and it looks gorgeous then I'll take a picture there but I don't want to create a you know a, a situation where I'm changing what I'm doing and displaying that I want to just show my joy and my kitchen right well it <clears throat> it must be nice to have the sun I say from it helps. <laughs> northwest Washington in January where we haven't seen the sun since the 4th of July but I, I I think that that is actually a beautiful statement you just made about not using the filters and spending less time on your computer because I know people are going to ask you, where do you find the time? And mm. when I, this is just the truth from my own life, when I spend the day with my face in a screen, I feel like I get nothing done in the actual real world. When I mm. barely pick up my phone, and you know this because I'll say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't pick up my phone," and I, you know, didn't reply to your message for three days or something. But mm. I feel like I get so much done. Just, and I know we kid ourselves and say, "I'm just going to look at this for a minute here while I'm waiting for this or whatever." But that that eats away at a lot of the quiet time that our brain needs, and just all that productive time just melts away. So. Mm. I really appreciate the example that you set and me and some of my friends have even talked about you like, oh, wow, she has to record her videos and then, you know, send them to get uploaded. She can't just record it on her phone. And and we just admire, I admire the intensity of your devotion to the freedom of your life. I, I really do. It's much helped by my husband because he's a he's got a degree in computer science and he's a kind of free software geek and a a Linux geek. And so the setup that I have when I threw my iPhone away or I gave my iPhone away about a year and a half ago. And the setup that we have is using e-ink readers, which do not have the same effect on the, on the eye and the retina. And I think that makes a difference because I do believe that if you're, you know, you're scrolling on an iPhone, there's something about the light that's coming from it that affects your retina and affects how your brain processes things that actually adds to the kind of addictiveness of it. And so using my Canon camera and then moving everything onto an e-ink device means that I'm not being affected in that way and then having really strong boundaries is is important to me I used to be like that I used to have an iPhone and I used to scroll and I used to be scrolling when dinner was cooking and you know and it and I know I've I've become aware of what it does over the last however many years to my body and so I mean literally notifications I don't have notifications on any of my devices and I have set times when I sit down and I engage and when those times are over I I close it down and and I move on with the rest of my life but it's a it's very much a discipline and I've fought with it for for very many years and it's part of the reason why I turned off all my social medias you know three or four years ago Um, it's been a they are incredibly addictive and it's been a huge journey and has required a lot of consciousness on on my part to to try to work like this and the help of my husband to set me up in a way that makes it possible 
I'm just telling you right now that we're going to have to have an episode called I gave my iPhone away <laughs> because that is going to play into the kitchen because you are going to be told I don't have time to soak beans before I cook them and you just revealed so much I mean there's a lot in what you just said so I I'm looking forward to that episode <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're pressing our time here but mm. you just have so much to share I've got um I've got one last question I'll kind of ball two things into one okay one is what do you hope to see you've alluded to this a little bit so maybe just expand on it what do you hope to see in the future of food production and what excites you the most about what you're doing and what's happening right now so the future and then what's exciting about now okay um <clears throat> my hope for the future of food production really is that that we connect because the way that we're living at the moment just is not sustainable the way that we produce food at the moment is not sustainable and i totally believe that we can change the world by changing our food if we change Amen. what's on our plates it comes right Amen. down to you know the, the bites in our mouth on yep. the food on our plate what we bring into our house where that comes from it ripples out and if we change what's on our plates we will change the entire world completely and that is done through connection and so i'd say connection is probably my hope for future food connection that we that we connect with our bodies and slow down and listen to what they're telling us listen to our symptoms listen to what our tummy likes and what it doesn't connect with our plates what's on them connect with the meat the animals the farmers connect with our creativity because that is what's taken me on this path it's creativity that pushed me to start with connect with each other connect with our community connect with the history that we've got and the the caveat i would put with that is that it's hard to connect you know like when Rob and i had relationship problems at the beginning you know to connect with that you have to face the things that are wrong you have to face the things that are painful and so connecting with our food and seeing that the carrots that we've bought have been sprayed with this, that and the other, we have to face, oh gosh, you know, I might have to pay more for these carrots and, and I'm worried about money. Or these carrots are actually, that pesticide is killing the bees. And so it's, connection is a wonderful word, but it has a shadow side and it requires us to be able to accept and confront pain but if we can do that we can change and we can connect we can connect with our bodies with the meat with our farmers with each other and when we do that we'll we'll absolutely change the world because you know my world has changed completely the way i look the way i am the way i think the way i live my family's life has changed the producers that i spend our funds on to buy food their lives are being changed the, the grass is being changed. If everyone could do that, then literally we would change the world. So I hope through sharing my joy at this, that that it will be contagious and we will start to, to connect more and instigate that change through that. Because 
it's just a matter of where we spend our money and where we put our choices. We don't need to have, you know, a revolution or, uh, you know, different top-down stuff. It's, it's bottom-up. It's taking our choices and putting our forks in a different place, putting our feet in a different place that will make the world sustainable and and make it start going in the right direction not the wrong direction so i think that's my my hope for future food production and the other part of the question is what excites me the most um i think process wise it's that ancestral wisdom it's that our ancestors before industrial processing came along they knew through hard work what was good for them and what was good for their environment. They had to do the things that were good for their environment. Otherwise, they wouldn't have food the next year. They wouldn't have strong animals. So that ancestral wisdom has so much to teach us. They had no science then. They didn't have backup research that could show them stuff. They just knew and they passed it on. And I find that incredibly inspiring and incredibly exciting that that I have the power in my hands and we have the power in our hands to learn that wisdom and to alchemize our food that we're eating every day through that and to change the environment and our communities with it and bringing that to life in my kitchen is is exciting and wonderful and I believe that the closer I get and the closer people get to to their food, to processing their food, to learning about their food, to knowing everything about their food, the more the more healthy and sane and joyful they will become and, and the better the world will become. So it's using that ancestral wisdom as a kind of a model to inform and enthuse myself and pass that on that really gets me going. <laughs> That's what most excites wow. me. Yes, I love that. And I see that completely throughout this entire conversation and everything that you share online. Thank you. Well, one last teeny tiny little bitty question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we like to do this at the beginning, but we didn't today. But ah, yeah. what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> oh dear. I haven't had any breakfast yet. I, um, <laughs> well, I didn't no have wonder time. we I, skipped over that. <laughs> I sorted out my, my son's breakfast before I came down and sat in front of the mic, but I'm going to go up and have some breakfast after I've come down a bit from talking to you. Um, we've got some leftovers again. Um, I made some millet and sorghum porridge yesterday and we ate it warm and there were leftovers so that's in the fridge ready for me to I might heat it up um I'm not sure yet and I fancy some ghee this morning so I'm gonna have it with some ghee and probably some some linseed and maybe a bit of miso as well so it's it's leftovers and we've got some some suans too in the fridge which I'll probably heat up and have with it to drink you're making me hungry talking about it <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> that was mean of me I, I didn't know you didn't have breakfast though <laughs> I just had to know <laughs> <laughs> and what did you what did you have for dinner then 
Make me even hungrier. Well, uh, again, it's not going to sound very glamorous, but it's because we we came home late. I probably haven't actually left our property in a couple of weeks, but we did leave today and we came back after dark. So after I went out and checked on all the animals, then there wasn't a whole lot of time left. So I'm doing kind of gaps-ish right now. Mm-hmm. And there's these pancakes you can make on gaps. They're uh, any winter squash and you cook it and then puree so you can mm. roast it or whatever or even use canned ones and then whip that with um, just a couple eggs mm-hmm. and I forget which stage of gaps this was introduced we went through all the introductory stages so now I would be in full gaps so I don't really remember where maybe stage three or four is when you can start eating mm, the winter squashes so. yeah but um, it makes these amazing pancakes, and I feel like if you can have those pancakes, you can do gaps for any length of time. Are you you so can't delicious. you can't see that I'm nodding. I I know those pancakes so very well. We used to make them on an industrial level in Cornwall with two cast iron pans on the go. My son yep, loved them, yep. and they are delicious, aren't they? They are, and I know what she says in there. You can put honey on these, but you probably won't need to. Yeah, and she's right. When yeah. you are not eating sugar, the sweetness of a winter squash is almost overwhelming it's so delicious and of course <clears throat> ghee <laughs> uh, salted ghee is my favorite so oh, that, that goes on ghee. top and boy i i can um oh, i can pull a magic trick and make a plate of those disappear right quick <laughs> yeah yeah no i we have a big history with squash pancakes and um they yes. are delicious so i'm yeah that i'm a bit jealous and I also I also slabbed up some um, some of our home cured bacon and yeah. fried up a couple big thick pieces. I mean, when you see at the store they say thick sliced bacon, forget about it. That's not even close to when you cut it by hand at home with a knife. And I think I thought about this this morning. I think thick sliced bacon is somebody's memory of bacon that they cut at home and mm. that you know trying to pull that back and now it's just become an item in the store that we see so <laughs> i don't know i i think it's really hard to go back to any other bacon but those kind of irregular rough cut homemade pieces <laughs> yeah I've, I've had rob trying to chop our home cured bacon i'm like can you cut it thinly he's like no i can't you just <laughs> no, you I get can't. a hunk of it yeah but the bread knife works pretty decently for cutting um pretty good slices i have found and and the colder it is of course the easier it is to yeah, cut yeah but i i like it nice and thick so oh you're making me yeah. want to go up and have bacon now <laughs> sorry <laughs> but you porridge there's porridge <laughs> yeah yeah there's porridge yeah, yeah there's porridge okay focus on the porridge well, is there anything else that you want to throw at us before we close out this discussion? No, no, you've, your questions are wonderful. And, and I think I've managed to say everything that I was excited about saying. So that's that's a mission completed. 
Your answers were absolutely beautiful and every one of them could be turned into a full podcast episode. So thank you for sharing all of that with us and until next time. (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for the questions and thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.